This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Hey everyone, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. Before we start the show, please check out all the resources at whatschoolcouldbe.org and our global online community. If you are a committed education change agent, simply install the What School Could Be app on your mobile device or navigate to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I hope to see you there. My guest today is Hannah Grady-Williams. Hannah grew up in North Carolina as the oldest of seven homeschooled children and started college online through College Plus when she was 14, meaning she graduated from high school and college with a degree in international business at the same time. Hannah notes that by roughly grades seven or eight, she was mostly teaching herself, although she did have outside instructors for some subject areas. She shared with me that most of her, quote, education came from one subject, speech and debate, where, simply by preparing for frequent competitions, she learned research, public speaking, communication, teamwork, efficiency, history, public policy, and even science. In a few minutes, you're going to get a real taste of Hannah's verbal acumen. Hannah's journey towards founding a company called DeSkills began in a blue pickup truck when her father handed her, at age 12, the phone so that she could close a deal on a piece of real estate. Now, as a 25-year-old native digital, Hannah is the founder of DeSkills, a VC-backed startup shifting students from test prep to life prep. It's a hub, perhaps the hub, where motivated teens learn new digital skills and convert them into real-world projects, helping them leave high school with more experience and connections than most college graduates. The vision is to equip one million high schoolers with impact portfolios that will help them forge their own paths in life and lead the country in leveraging AI for good. Hannah's board and investors include Ted Dintersmith, the author of What School Could Be, and the top-performing U.S. venture capitalist for the years 1995 to 1999, as well as Christopher Lockhead, the godfather of category design, Forex best-selling author, and former CMO of three publicly traded companies. Lockhead describes Hannah as, quote, a pioneer of our time. Conversely, one school administrator called her offensive to some. Hannah's also the author of the top-selling book, A Leader's Guide to Unlocking Gen Z, and a TEDx speaker and top-charting podcast host. She's only 25 years old. You can learn a great deal about Hannah by visiting DeSkill's website and social media channels. In the following conversation, I will focus more on Hannah, the young entrepreneur and motivated human being who cares deeply about making the world a better place. During all my hours preparing and reviewing a ton of digital materials and written information Hannah provided me, 
I continuously felt like I was in the middle of some sort of Star Wars movie, watching a rebel force battle an evil empire. Was I having one of those crazy person moments, or was I tuning into something real and very intended? You get to decide as you listen to this episode. And now, here's my conversation with Hannah Grady-Williams, the 25-year-old chief rebel, aka founder and CEO of Diskills. Grady Williams, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Thanks, Josh. Gosh, I am I've been looking forward to this for oh months. <laughs> ever since we first talked, Josh. You know, I I think you're you're my honorary uncle at this point. <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. Uncle Josh, we're gonna start that way. Okay, that sounds good. I too have been really looking forward to this conversation. And how awesome that I get to start the 2024 season, if you will. With you, there could be no better way to do that. So that's great. Okay, so let's jump in. So Hannah, I want to focus on two elements of your growing up experience. The first is your relationship with your father, who was in real estate in North Carolina. So the story of his handing you the phone at age 12 to close a real estate deal is well-documented, but I'm more interested in the reasons why you looked up to him and respected him for the work that he did and his values. Like, what is that story? I wish I could give you, and maybe I can try or attempt to describe my dad in a a visual picture, but my dad's kind of one of those guys who you would never expect to be successful. You know, he was one of those kids who he did really well in high school, but by the time he got to college, he flunked everything, didn't really love the way, you know, he had felt pressured through high school. And so he just sort of gave up in college and nobody really expected him to do much. He was an only child. He, you know, dresses frumpily, so to speak. He's a, he's a big guy. So he was, you know, a martial artist and a fencer. Mm. My dad's one of those guys who had, you know, when you ask him who his heroes are, he'd say people like, you know, the founder of Walmart, who drove an old beat-up truck, even though he was you know, a billionaire. <laughs> and he's he's that kind of guy who's just so under the radar. And and to this day, my dad won't talk about publicly, you know, his anything about his his wealth or his success. And he mentors very, very few people. Mm-hmm. And so I, as a kid growing up, had this sort of dual relationship with my dad. I had, you know, the one side that was me as a a teenager, like, oh, dad, you know, why do you have to be this way? Why can't you be like the other dads? Mm. And then I had the side of my dad that so, I so deeply respected because he would read, you know, my sisters and I books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I began to see the qualities that he was talking about Mm-hmm. from those books and and reading to us, I saw them evidenced in his own life. And he's the guy who would never take any day for granted. You know, he would always, he's, he's one of those guys, he would say, you know, pithy statements to us as kids. And I always sort of laughed them off and made fun of him for it. And now I look back and think, wow, that's a really good life perspective to say, mm-hmm. you know, we're never promised tomorrow. And, you know, he he would always tuck us in and, you know, me and my my sister, who's 18 months younger than me. And then of course, all the way down my line of siblings. And I just, I developed this just deep respect 
for my dad as someone who was so different mm. and so inspiring. And, and that's what led to that moment when he handed me his phone and asked me to close this deal on an investment property. And, and I guess I should have expected nothing less from, <laughs> from my dad because that's just kind of the kind of guy that he was. And I learned so mm. much from him. Wow, that's so amazing. It's, it's really interesting to me how there are parallels with my dad. He was very similar in that way to me. He had this side where he was just like this super tough cookie, very, very hard. And by the way, you're the oldest of seven, right? Yes. And I'm the youngest of seven. And on my side, it was all boys and one girl and the girl was first. So, you know, my poor sister, she she began the process. And I think my mother, <laughs> my mother kept wanting to have another girl and finally stopped after I showed up at the end. And Josh, on my side, it's all girls and one boy. I know. This is this is bizarre. And you know what's really crazy is my father was also a fencer as well. And his father was as well. So that's like super interesting. But I'm also wondering, like, as a family, did you all eat together, dinner together? Was that a normal thing, a regular thing for you? You know, in elementary and middle school, I'd say yes. Mm. And things changed in high school when all of us were scattered between activities. And I remember mm. my mom especially lamenting the days that we shifted from really regularly having meals together to being so scattered in the evenings that we didn't. And I know for a fact that it's even worse now for my younger siblings because, you know, my 14 and 12-year-old sisters, they're at jujitsu six days a week, six nights. Right. You know, you've got my brother who's now, in, he's going to public school. My sisters are still homeschooled. So it's just a, a wide variety of activities. But mm. I'm glad you asked that because I am reflecting back on the memories of elementary and middle school. And we did have a lot of family dinners, a lot of family dinner conversations. And, and those really were a, a foundational aspect of, I guess, what made me the way I am. Yeah, same for me. It was like a Socratic seminar every night over dinner. <laughs> and the very irritating, inevitable result, which is that my father would stand up and say, well, I'm right. And then he'd walk off and go back to his office, you know, and we would all just be like, no, you're not right. You're not right. And so anyway, so kind of along the same lines, you make no bones about how speech and debate within the construct of your homeschooling experience shaped who you have become and the skills you hold now at age 25. So let's have a policy conversation. I'm a superintendent. You have met at a conference and I mention I am considering mandating speech and debate for all students in my districts. And so you know, Hannah, that education is a zero-sum game. Something that's added, something else gets taken away. So what is your response to my thinking? And, and this is a chance for you to kind of reflect on speech and debate, which is so important to you. Well, first of all, speech and debate, yes, I am well documented in saying speech and debate was absolutely 100% integral to pretty much every success I could ever attribute to my own life. And I would say as a result of speech and debate and specifically the way it worked within the homeschooling community, I, I don't know if this is the case within public schools, but to my understanding, the homeschool leagues, there's two of them in CFCA and STOA. Those mm. two leagues are the largest speech and debate leagues in the country, not just mm. homeschool leagues, but of any speech and debate league. And so not only was it incredibly competitive as a sport, so to speak. It was also 
just a, a challenge mentally. It was a challenge with relationships, I guess you could say, because you were learning how to navigate, how do you compete with someone and also, you know, on a very intellectual level about very heated topics and then be able to represent both sides and have this well-rounded perspective. And so I learned so much from speech and debate in my own experience. And yet, to go back to your first question, mm -hmm. if I were the superintendent and trying to make a decision of should it be mandatory, I'm of the belief that no subject should be mandatory in the mm -hmm. sense that I, I don't know that speech and debate would necessarily be integral to someone whose career, let's say they were, I don't know, a science genius or something like that. And so I would say that speech and debate for most students would be just an exceptional, exceptional way mm. to get grounding in so many different areas, but it may not be great for all students. So I would say maybe 80%, as I'm sort of thinking out loud, for 70 to 80% of students, speech and debate would enhance every part of their life. And I'll give you a couple specifics as to why, and I'm sure we're, we're going to get into this, but yeah. the idea that most of the time we talk about in school prepping for a test Speech and debate does the opposite. Mm. It asks a student to take an audacious supposition or an audacious statement or policy, and it asks you to examine it on every single side of uh, that you could possibly examine of that equation. Mm -hmm. And what it teaches you is, you know, your your representation or your learning comes from someone else's evaluation of how well you communicate mm. your position yes. on a topic. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to do with if you can, you know, you fill out a multiple choice test, if you can memorize things, if you can, whatever. It, it has to do with taking what I now know, having, you know, worked with 3,000 companies and, and what the corporate world and what careers demand of us, and it puts it in the context of a challenging mental battle, so to speak. And mm -hmm. I just, I know for myself, like now when I think about when I worked in consulting for a few years and now as an entrepreneur, just the ability to think about a topic from mm -hmm. 20 or 30 or 40 different angles is a skill that I now realize I sort of developed in those very formative years of speech and debate from ages, you know, 12 to 16, that now I take it for granted, but it's, it's a skill that I guess a lot of people sort of skip over in yes. the sense of traditional education. So this is long winded, but I am a huge advocate proponent of speech and debate and mm -hmm. I also think, when we could get into this, that a student's journey should be able to be customized and they should be able to pick out subjects that are interesting to them. And I, mm -hmm. I think that that might be the case for 70 to 80% of the kids that they really got into speech and debate, they would love it. And then there's probably a percentage who, who wouldn't benefit as much. Yeah, I love that, Hannah. I One of the things that I've learned over these 118 episodes of this podcast is that in the rigid system that we've had in place for more than 100 years, well over 100 years, what ends up happening is that everybody has a good idea and then they try to implement that idea. And then it becomes this zero-sum game again. And it's not just speech and debate. There's a hundred different things that people propose. You know, here in Hawaii, where I'm based now, there's legislation that was passed last session that requires that all students be in computer science 
And I'm glad that kids are going to get computer science experiences. But at the same time, wait, wait, what about the choice? What about the opportunity for kids to make their own decisions based on a reimagined way of doing education, which is a whole nother podcast in and of itself, right? Yes. So, But I love your story about speech and debate and the ways that it helped build your skills that you're applying directly now. So slight kind of left turn here, but a long time ago, one of my previous guests, Robert Landau, encouraged me to ask future guests about service or volunteer experiences that impacted or influenced their lives. And you shared an experience that made me glad Mr. Landau encouraged me to ask the question, so what is the Honduras fountain of life and how at age 15 did your position on its board shape or change or impact your life and the development of your voice? Gosh, you're taking me back, Josh. I Way back. <laughs> about this for, for a while. So when I was 14, I believe it was, was my very first trip to Honduras. Mm. And I went with some of my friends and older mentors and peers at my church and we went down to a place, it's the organization is Honduras Fountain of Life, but it's in essence a place in Talabay, Honduras, which is in the sort of central area of Honduras and the mountainous region. And there's a, a girl's hogar or like a girl's home and orphanage mm -hmm. that takes young ladies who are, you know, either they're actual orphans or they're, you know, their parents are not able to provide for them. And there's also a school that came about later. And now there's a hospital. And anyway, all of this infrastructure is getting developed. Well, I visited for the first time, I think I was 13 or 14. And the experience was incredibly eye-opening because, you know, people, I think in the U.S., talk all the time about going to these other countries and, you know, helping with projects or building, you know, houses or whatever. And we talk about how much we give these, you know, poor people. That's sort of the narrative. Yep. And I went and found that I was given so much more by them than I could ever possibly give to them. And of course, this was an eye-opening experience as a, as a native digital who is narcissistic in a way. And that's a generational feeling and sense that I, I guess our generation has because of how personalized and how customized our life is. Mm -hmm. And me coming from this self-centered sort of world and going to this place that has a completely different culture, right? It's their community first. You could compliment one of the tias or the, the, the aunties. You could comment a piece of jewelry they were wearing and they'd take it off and give it to you, mm -hmm. even though that's probably, you know, one of their most prized possessions. And and, you know, obviously having traveled much more now, I see that these cultures or these communal cultures have that response in many ways. But as a, as a young middle schooler, this was just incredibly eye-opening. And so the first time I went, I, I went for a one-week trip. I went back for another one-week trip. And then the next summer, I decided to go with a smaller team and we spent the whole summer in Honduras mm. and I was able to, you know, teach music lessons and to these, to these young girls. And we found a, a piano, I actually brought one and I was able to help these girls learn. And anyway, this whole experience, I just found my eyes open in so many different ways. And I came back to the U S a couple months later and the chair of the board, who is a good friend of mine, he asked myself and another young man who is a, a couple years older than me to 
join the board as like the first youth members. Wow. And what I appreciated about Jim's approach to this, and I, I know I was one of the first youth members, and now I look back and and you know, we are looking at the skills at forming a youth board and all this jazz. And I and I look back and and I know the conversations happening behind the scenes were how do we get more young people involved in our board and making decisions? But at the time, I had no idea it was possible to be part of a board as a 15-year-old. And sure Mm -hmm. enough, they didn't just create some youth board and whatever. They put me on the board, the actual board, not just Mm -hmm. the the youth advisory board, but they put me on the board and gave me equal voice and gave me the opportunity to research donation engines that we're looking at implementing and to pitch them to the whole board and to handle the tech integration and just all of these responsibilities that, again, I had never thought about as a middle schooler would be something adults could trust me mm. with. Mm. And that experience was so incredibly eye-opening. And and that, coupled with all these other areas that I'm sure we'll talk about, mm. are the foundational reason for why I'm so passionate about what we do now. Mm. But I would just say, gosh, Joshua, when you took me back there, <laughs> just like all of these pieces of, of my subconscious sort of live from memories that came from Honduras. And I'll, I'll just share one other story, which is I think this was my very first trip and we were painting a house or a church building or something. And I was taking a snack break and I had this little mini stack of Pringles that I had just brought as a snack. And one of the young boys from the village, he was probably nine or 10, Mm. came up to me and just his eyes just opened wide, his mouth, like you could (laughs) see him sort of salivating. You looked at my Pringles and I sort of gestured to him like, do you want some? And he, you know, he nodded his head really sheepishly. And I gave him a Pringle and I just, I was just like, you know, take the whole thing. And he looked at me and he was like, you know, gracias, gracias. And he runs down the hill back to his parents' farm. And I see him like five minutes later coming up, dragging just this massive bag Mm. of oranges, Mm. probably a hundred oranges that some of the sweetest, you know, they didn't look pretty on the outside, but the inside was just the most amazing fruit. And I just have that memory of the board, but then also just these one-on-one connections with the youth in, in Honduras that have just shaped everything where I realized just how how privileged and how fortunate I am. And so stories like that will pop up in my yeah. head every, every now and then. And I realize just how grateful I should be every single day. Yeah, I love that, Hannah. It's one of the things, you know, we talk so much in education, reimagining education about durable skills and essential skills and all of that stuff. And there are these lists and lists of things, these skills that people make. And one of the things that I almost never, well, actually never see on that list is a deep understanding of reciprocity. And that's what jumped out at me when I read about your Honduras experiences that And I think that's probably the reason why they wanted you to serve on their board is because you had developed a deep sense of reciprocity. That's what the essence of service learning is, is reciprocity. It's not a one-way street of of volunteering and, and giving to people. And that story you tell about the oranges and the Pringles is so perfect in its reciprocity, right? It's almost unbalanced in a way. A hundred oranges for a can of Pringles, what, you know? And yet that was the value that that little kid 
assigned to it. So I just I just think it speaks a lot to who you are. And that's actually a, a perfect segue to this next question, which is actually going to force you into a bit of a choice here, Hannah. So I'm going to put you on the spot and make you make a decision you will not want to make. So I'm going to read you a list of things and you have to choose one and only one that you feel most represents what I call an, quote, everything seemed to change moment. So remember, just one and only one. So here's the list of things that happened between the ages of 12 and 23 to Hannah Grady-Williams. So the blue pickup truck experience, number one, writing and producing a musical production in college, number two, your internship at the Biltmore Center for Professional Development, number three, the offer of a management position at Biltmore, number four, the beginning of your consulting with businesses on Gen Z talent, number five, and then the last one at age 23, you published a book titled A Leader's Guide to Unlocking Gen Z. So which of these is the day Hannah Grady-Williams universe changed and why? You were so right that this was going to be an <laughs> extremely <laughs> I, used, hard I used to question. do this to my students all the time and they, they, they just drove them nuts. You know, they're like, no, we have to make a choice. I'm like, yep, you got to make a choice. <laughs> Good luck to me. Gosh. If I could segment my life, I could give you one of each option, but okay, I've got mm -hmm. to make one choice. Mm -hmm. I would say my internship at BCPD or the Biltmore Center for Professional Development. And the reason for that is it was sort of the culmination of understanding all of the things from my 12-year-old blue pickup truck experience to the musical I wrote at 14 with some of my friends, all of those fun things that at the time I thought were just fun, culminating in where I suddenly had this, this epiphanal moment mm. that when I started working at the Center for Professional Development, I was capable of so much more impact Mm. on the real world than I ever thought was possible for myself. Because all those other things in high school, I just thought these are for fun. I didn't know I was developing amazing real world skills. And suddenly here I was in a professional professional world. And I'll, I'll take it one layer deeper that I haven't shared with you, Josh. Yes, I had a pivotal moment on my first week at Biltmore Center for Professional Development. I'll just call it BCPD because that's way too much of a mouthful. <laughs> but my very first week, my manager, who was amazing, Anna Sullins, huge impact on my life, she was holding a workshop on communication for managers. And one of the exercises, which of course, part of my internship was, you know, setting up snacks and drinks for the classes and preparing materials and, and all of that for their internal professional development. And the very first week she had this workshop and she invited me to come and participate. And one of the exercises was create, you know, write a speech about a particular topic and you get one minute to come up and, you know, perform it in front of the class. And I ended up, I was like, oh gosh, this is, you know, super easy because I've been doing this for years, barely an inconvenience. And so I got up and presented and Anna looks at me and she goes, I had no idea you could do that. Mm. And suddenly from that one experience where, you know, the other managers were sort of struggling, it just wasn't their wheelhouse. They hadn't done speech and debate. Yeah. And it was, 
this conversation around, you know, performance management and how do you communicate effectively as a manager. And suddenly what happened is this cascade of events where Anna realized I could do that. So she asked, what else could I do? She started putting me on more challenging projects. And suddenly I was bringing her project ideas. So a mm. month in, I was presenting projects to her. And, and then she was able to look at that and say, wow, are you also capable of this? And within a three-month time span, I was the very first intern who was given the role of actually not just like auditing a training, but teaching these training classes to managers, directors, and new employees at Biltmore, which is known for their training culture. So this just all goes to show, you know, from that one moment of experience where I was able to take the skills I had from high school, prove them to a manager and had a manager who was understanding enough to unlock my potential and not just hold me back to the so-called job requirements. And suddenly I found myself in a position that many other people in the company had worked years to achieve. I, mm. I was doing it within three months of an internship. Wow. Love that. Well played. And one of the reasons why I constructed it this way, Hannah, is I was thinking, you know, reflecting while I was putting this together about a moment. I was a little bit older in my life. I think I was probably in my mid-30s by the time this happened. But I had been working as a chef my first career for a number of years and was beginning to discover that it was too isolating and that Josh, the extremely shy and introverted kid, was not being served by being so alone and working alone in kitchens. And so I forced myself to switch careers and go into hotel management, but I actually came through the door through night auditing, which meant that I was learning the hotel business from the auditing point of view, but I was working 11 o'clock at night till seven in the morning. And then one night the door opened three o'clock in the morning and the owner of the hotel came in and he said, literally, our front office manager got caught doing drugs. Do you want the job? And everything, Hannah, in my whole life at that point would have screamed, nope, you're not ready to do something like this. You might never be. And instead I said, yes. And that was the moment that my universe changed because all of a sudden I was in front of people from six o'clock in the morning till six o'clock at night, checking in and checking out. And I was able to apply all those skills that I had learned up to that point in helping the office be the best that it could be. And I just, I love what you've described here because it's those epiphanal moments when you really do understand how worthy you are in terms of your skills, right? That's just a great story. So let's take it one step further before we go to our first break. So Hannah, you've listed for me a series of books that have been influential in your life, which include, but are not limited to Drive by Daniel Pink, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and Damn Good Advice by George Lois. So the book I want to ask you about, because I was a history teacher, is Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin. So the gist of this book, for our listeners who don't know it, is that President Lincoln, rather than stocking his cabinet with people who agreed with him, went out and got his political rivals to serve as his cabinet secretaries. So briefly, Hannah, you are a businesswoman. And so in what ways does the Team of Rivals concept resonate with you or inspire you even in the work you do with the skills, which we're going to start talking about when we come back from the break. Gosh, this, it has been years since I first read Team of Rivals. And I was actually thinking the other day, I need to reread this book because it was so incredibly good. Mm. And I read this book post my epiphanal moment at, at age 12 with a blue pickup truck experience. Mm. 
because my brain was just on fire about how can I learn about leadership and negotiation and all of these things. And so this book is thick. No joke about it. It is It is a thick book. It's like, you know, <laughs> you sure pick is. up an encyclopedia. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is like it is 700 huge. pages. Yes. And I read it in high school. And I just remember, Josh, like reading this book. There's there's one other I didn't mention, which is called Why Nations Fail. And I read mm. these two books back to back. So there's Team of Rivals and Why Nations Fail. So one explores the leadership of Abraham Lincoln and how he really intentionally put together this team of essential opposites with opposite viewpoints and, and all that jazz. And then you have Why Nations Fail that explores why leadership in countries that fail is the reason that they fail. Yeah. And what I learned from this book and, and how I apply it today is a couple of things. So number one, it's incredibly important to have people in my life who I respect and who are on my leadership team, who I adamantly disagree with and can courageously disagree with, mm. and who we can have discussions that edify both of us because we come from incredibly different points of view. And that could be anything from our political, social, economic beliefs to our moral beliefs or our religious beliefs. It could be any of those things. But it could also be, and this is an important application in, in my company and also in my close inner circle of friends, is it could also be people whose brains work so entirely different. So very clear example of this is one of my members, the members of my board. He's my Obi-Wan, Chris Lockhead. Mm. His brain, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, you can edit it out, not Josh, but <laughs> he calls himself dysphagic. Mm -hmm. in, in essence, dyslexic, and he's got ADHD, and he was a high school dropout, and actually he was kicked out of high school, and now he's written over you know 15 number one bestsellers, and his book, Play Bigger, was um, the top five marketing books of all time. And anyway, he's just just amazing guy. And we had to learn how to communicate because his brain just thinks so differently from mm. mine. You know, he, he'll he tell me, you get to see the legendary side of me. You know, you get to see the side that is the most creative, the best part of who I am. And in every other area of my life, I'm incompetent. You mm. know, he, he was telling me the other day, he bought his wife, you know, brand new, beautiful Range Rover, you know, car for Christmas. And the next day he backed into it with his <laughs> brand new Range Rover and the driving, and, you know, while he was driving, he can't send an email to save his life pretty much or can't organize anything. And the point being, he's someone who I consider, you know, my top three most influential people in my life. And yet we struggle to communicate on certain levels. And so this book, just Team of Rivals, yeah. set this, this stage for me in high school that having people around me who disagree with me or whose brains think differently from me mm. is not just a sort of thing you have to deal with. It's actually the essence of genius. Mm. And I love that Abraham Lincoln set that precedent for us from way back in the 1800s. And, you know, he even disagreed with his cabinet members about de key decisions he was making. And yet he chose to embrace that. And, and actually, you, as you read through the book, you find there's many decisions he made that that were not his originally. They were the people who disagreed with him whose decision he chose to take. So it's just influenced me in so many ways in my life. And you asking that question, Joss, has, has spurred <laughs> me to uh, read it again. Read it again. <laughs> 700 right. pages is going to be another slog, but every bit is gold. Yeah. I love the idea before we go to break that already in this first section, Hannah, we've identified maybe two 
sort of unthought of durable skills. One is reciprocity, which comes out of your story about your time in Honduras. And the other is about the notion of being able to exist with others who disagree with you, especially if you're in a leadership position. And I just think what we're doing is we're enriching the conversation around skill building. And that's just like super cool. So. Hey everyone, we have been talking with Hannah Grady-Williams, the founder, AKA Chief Rebel at DeSkills, a Gen Z consultant for startups and a published author. Stay with us, we will be right back. Hi fellow educators, I'm Steve Shapiro. And like you, I'm excited about the possibilities of what school could be. Please check out my podcast, Experience Matters, where I talk to guests ranging from big national thinkers like Daniel Pink and Tony Wagner to recent high school graduates about the most profound learning experiences of their youth. Then we dig into the implications for how we can reshape schools to produce powerful breakthrough learning for all of our students. Education can take many forms, but whatever form it takes, experience matters. Hey there. Are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi friends, this is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Hey everyone, we are back with Hannah Grady-Williams, the founder, aka Chief Rebel at DeSkills. So Hannah, in the year 1517, a professor of moral theology named Martin Luther wrote his 95 Theses, otherwise known as a disputation on the power and efficacy of indulgences in the Catholic Church. So in short, he was calling out the Church for selling tickets to heaven, which is an oversimplification but marked the start of the Protestant Reformation. So in 2023, you wrote a similar document called About and posted it on LinkedIn. So what were you calling out and what was the rebellion you were inviting people to join and how, even though you are not a teacher in the traditional sense, are these words expressive of your philosophy of education? Wow. I, I'm, I'm taken aback that my uh, about section is getting compared to the 95 theses. I'm honored, Josh. <laughs> Absolutely. But in essence, it's it's meant to be a manifesto. So here's the essence: our obsolete education model prepares our students for tests, not for life. And this is no fault of our teachers. 
thank you so much for having this podcast to capture those stories Mm -hmm. from our teachers, but I believe it's a fault of the system. But here's the evidence. AI is the future, but most schools are banning it. And I want to share a story a bit later if we have time to get to it, Josh, of an experience I just had two weeks ago with some students at a career speed networking event that really highlights this. But Mm -hmm. most schools are banning it. And yet, here is a a very provocative statement that I 100% will stand by. Within the next three to five years, there's only going to be three types of jobs or careers. Mm. Number one, trades slash healthcare, you know, the sort of boots on the ground jobs. Mm -hmm. Number two, people who can create radical value, drive revenue and impact businesses with AI. Mm -hmm. And three, people who say, do you want fries with that? Mm -hmm. And so said another way, students who don't understand how to leverage and use AI don't really have the type of job they'd want to have in the future. They're screwed in a sense. And yet what happens is in 2023 or 2024 now, as of of this year, most high schoolers cram facts. We get great at low-level procedures and follow rules. But as Ted Dennersmith talks about all the time, these are things that AI does perfectly and for free. And what happens, and I've seen this being on the corporate side and having worked with about 3,000 businesses at this point, What you get from that type of thinking and the test cramming and the rule following and and all that jazz is a hoop jumping, fetch a stick employee who will likely graduate college if they do go to college with a degree that's not relevant once they graduate. Mm -hmm. And I just have this moral quandary with this, this direction. I find this extremely morally upsetting because... What we're setting kids up for is is that future where the distance between school and what it was meant to do and preparing kids for life, in essence, is, is creating this gap between school and companies that's growing further and further and further apart. So the rebellion is this. We believe at DeSkills that change is not going to happen as fast as we'd like it to from the inside of our school systems. There are beautiful, bright pockets of teachers who are saying, we're going to use AI in the classroom. We're going to teach real world skills. We're going to develop our students. But that's not going to be the majority of students or, or, you know, students' experiences from within our school districts. And so we are introducing a rebellion from the outside. Mm. So instead of approaching this problem from the inside, and as I was listening to your amazing episode with Sophia um, Dietrich from FIS, from Mm -hmm. Frankfurt, and Vama, was that the other student's name? Mm -hmm. Vama. Mm -hmm. They're absolutely amazing. So they were talking as students from their perspective about AI, and I could not agree more about their perspective of, you know, how long is this change going to take? And we as students have to ask that question of, if the change is going to take so long, then why don't we do this from the outside? What if change isn't really all that complicated? What if, you know, teens could get AI savvy, could gain real world experience, could build revenue and an impact producing software on their own, mm-hmm. build connections and make an impact on real businesses before even stepping foot in college? Like what if we could create more Sophia's of the world in, in high school? 
Yeah. And so that rebellion is, is in essence, shifting or, or bringing together this group of parents and teachers of students with these student voices at the paramount, at the forefront, to have the power to shift native digitals from test prep to life prep, from degrees to skills, from meaningless hoops to fulfilling self-forged careers, from resumes to impact portfolios starting mm. in high school. Perfect. And that's the rebellion. Perfect. So the perfect segue, because I can imagine our listeners, Hannah, going, okay, I'm listening. So now I want to know a little bit more detail. So let me cue it up in, in this way. I want to co-write a children's book with you. And the title of this children's book is My Epic Journey to a Place Called Geneva Near Chicago. And I've already, Hannah, written the first three sentences of our children's book that we're going to write together. So here's, you know, the cue up. For a few minutes, not too long or long enough for listeners to get the point, you get to move the story forward, okay? So listeners, put yourselves in storybook mode and, and imagine the drawings and text in front of you as you flip the pages. Okay, so here goes. The story begins with, once upon a time, I found a bagel shop near Chicago in a small place, a small space, tucked into a strip mall. No branding on the outside, just hot bagels on their sign. So where does this children's book go from here, Hannah? I looked at this bagel shop tucked away in, in this strip mall and as a young person who's grown up as a native digital, I looked at this bagel shop, walked in, smelled the amazing bagels, but saw that the line was too short. And I wondered how could this possibly be because they have delicious food. It's absolutely amazing. Why are there not more customers? Mm. So then I begin to search for impact gaps. I look at their website. It looks like it was straight out of 2005. I noticed they don't have any online ordering or delivery. Mm. I look at their signage. It says bagel shop. They have no branding. They have no logo or mascot. I peek over the, the desk and look at their ordering system. It's still the, the punch the numbers in ordering system with barely the ability to take a credit card. Mm. And I ask myself as a, as a young person, how could I help them? How mm. could I help them bring in more customers? How could I help them on, you know, build more relevance in their communities on social media? How could I, how could I, how could I? And suddenly my yeah. brain is, a light bulb goes off. Wow, I could take all the things I'm learning from how to use Canva and Photoshop to my understanding of how social media works. And I could take all of my skills and I could actually help this business not go out of business mm. by helping with these digital areas that I'm really good at. So I'm dead serious, Hannah. I'm absolutely dead serious. I think Diskills has a children's book in its future. And imagine that little Josh, when he was, let's say, in the fifth grade or the fourth grade, reading this children's book and going, ooh, I could do that. And then he goes all the way into middle school, which is just a terrible experience. It was for me in our traditional schooling system. And continuing to, to look around and going, how might I, how might I, what could I do to help with this or to help with that? Which is, in fact, my experience when I went home 
every day after school, which was never a good thing for me. I spent all my time with my dad building rock walls and, and digging trails and going sailing and, you know, building boats and things like that, right? My whole idea around this question was, how far back can we take the idea of how might I? What can I do to help? And then we can build in the reciprocity part of it. Like, what do I receive as a result of doing this, you know? So this takes us to this next question here, which kind of builds a little bit more on the impact portfolio part. So my listeners are likely not traditional classroom teachers, but for many reasons, I think many listeners might struggle to understand your rebellion and what the skills does. So let's do a lightning round of super concrete examples that draw a distinction between a traditional submission to a college admissions officer, which is grades, test scores, and a resume of activities, and submitting an impact portfolio from the skills or that was initiated by the skills. So each example is drawn from a hypothetical Hawaii high schooler's resume. And again, I'm based in Hawaii. It's where I do this podcast. And let's make sure AI and paid positions are part of each of your brief responses, right? Okay, so here goes. Here's the beginning of the lightning round, number one. A normal high schooler's resume might say, volunteered at Hugs, a Hawaii nonprofit supporting Hawaii's seriously ill children and their families. So an impact portfolio might report what work done for Hugs. It might report, I identified that Hugs had an amazing storytelling opportunity mm. with the, the children who were ill, their parents, their families. And so I might take my skill of videography and the ability to tell stories and Instead of just volunteering, I have created memories and stories via video of short-form content where I put together interviews with, with the kids and their families about the experience they received, and then was able to take that content, put it onto their social channels, their website, create a QR code so that people in the physical building could go and access these stories and these memories to see the impact that Hugs is having on their local community. Wow, beautiful. Number two, a normal high schooler's resume might say, interned at the law offices of Smith, Kealoha, and Yamamoto, which specializes in accident litigation. So an impact portfolio might report what work done for this office. I saw this law firm, they have amazing clients, they do amazing work, but something they're missing is the ability to aggregate all of their client data into a central system mm. and create a way to stay in touch with those customers over time so they could serve them again in the future. Mm. So I, as a student, identified this impact gap. I added a CRM system, uh, maybe HubSpot or Insightly. I collected and aggregated all the client data, put it in a way that was easy to understand for all the attorneys, and then I created an email drip campaign to help them stay in touch with clients who were active clients at the time so that in the future they're reminded of our services. Wow. And what is kind of at the meta level, the growing understanding on the part of the student of artificial intelligence and the role it plays 
in this aggregation of data? So a couple things. Number one is many students prior to artificial intelligence and having these tools like ChatGPT may not know enough context about a law firm and how it works to Mm. be able to do a project like this. But now they're Mm. able to create their own plans of these impact projects with just a couple of minutes chatting with ChatGPT. They can get enough industry knowledge to be able to execute this. So that's number one. Mm -hmm. And number two is they could, if they want to take this to a second level, instead of simply using AI to teach them as a human how to execute work, they could instead build a custom GPT that does it for them. So Mm. they could do this for other clients, not just one law firm. They could do it for 10 or 20 over weekends, over the summer, et cetera. So they're earning income. So an example of that might be, let's say they do one CRM setup for one client. Well, then they get really smart and they build a custom GPT that they name, I don't know, Garrett Dinglehofer. And they (laughs) put the data for a law firm into the what we call the training data of this custom GPT. And they give it instructions, which is, I'm going to give you the website of a law firm. And I want you to give me, you know, information about their brand voice and mm. what they stand for, et cetera, et cetera. And then let's take our first example. Instead of the law firm, let's take the hugs example, because this is a little bit easier to, to understand. Let's say, we build a custom GPT where you could drop the Hugs website in and it scrapes all the data, understanding what their stories are, their brand voice, et cetera. And then it creates short form video scripts for the student to use. So, and, and that's just literally layer one. We haven't even talked about the automations, the ability to connect with Zapier and the, and the zaps you could create to automate activities. So there's, oh my gosh, Josh, like we could take this into <laughs> layers two, three, four, five, yes, all we could. the things you could do with AI. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Two more before we go to our next question. So number three, a normal high schooler's resume might say worked as a summer camp counselor at the YMCA's Camp Erdman on the North Shore of Oahu. So an impact portfolio might report what related work for Camp Erdman. Gosh, so many things. So one that instantly pops to mind is, let's say that student was a counselor. Awesome. Let's say that the student could become a micro-consultant to Mm. this summer camp. So let's say the summer camp runs off of donations. Well, maybe that student, instead of just being a counselor, they could pull together a group of other counselors and students. And the impact gap they find is that the camp counselors or the, the camp is taking their donations currently through checks in the mail. Maybe you have to send them to a PO box, which is still the case for some nonprofits that I've worked with. And they decide, let's set up a donation engine and let's promote it among all the counselors. So let's say they decide to, you know, pull together a group of four or five people, each of them take individual roles, and this particular student heads up and leads this endeavor. So they select a donation engine, they take their skills of understanding how the donation engine works, and then they take it to the leadership of the camp and they say, hey, what if we could put this centralized hub together for your donations and we as counselors want to help promote it to the parents and the students. We're going to add it to flyers. We're going to use Canva to design some flyers, add QR codes to show you where you can go donate. Mm. And so we'll set up all the tech and the infrastructure and how to market it for you. Wow, that's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Okay, so this last one, Hannah, before we go 
to break. This one's got a little bit more of a setup to it, but I think that you're going to like the opportunity that it opens up. So one of the funnest things about my 2023 guest interviews was asking educators and education leaders about their so-called crazy awesome moments when a lesson or a small step or a collaboration or a team project or an interaction turned the world upside down in the most positive and progressive way possible. So along the same lines of, you know, thinking about what a traditional reporting process is to a college versus an impact portfolio and identifying that impact gap. Hannah Grady-Williams, what is the story of Rory and Anna, and what did they build in 14 days? Rory and Anna are, or at the time, were 14 and 16. Okay. And these two young ladies lived in two different states in two different time zones, had never met each other, and throughout the course of 14 days, had never had a Zoom call. They had only texted or DM'd. Okay. And these two young ladies partnered together for last year's GPT Innovators Cup, where the challenge was to build a business using ChatGPT in 14 days. Okay. These two young ladies with no guidance, no context other than what the challenge stood for, the framework, these two, <laughs> two 14- and 16-year-old girls who had never met came together and created Acadium, which is a Google Chrome extension that helps students with their productivity. It's basically a productivity tracker and timer. Mm. And to provide more context, these girls had never coded before, mm. ever. Mm -hmm. Rory told me before the sprint that she had literally picked up Coding for Dummies, you know, one of those books, <laughs> yes. Coding for Dummies, and uh -huh. tried to learn how to code, but they start you with Hello World. And if you're trying to learn Python, they try to work you from ground zero up to where you can do something. Well, she and Anna took the opposite approach, which is set an audacious goal. We're yep. going to have a fully functioning Chrome extension at the end of 14 days. Then they worked backwards. Mm. And we call this impact learning. They mm. set an impact and they work backwards. So what these two young ladies did is they divided their responsibilities. Rory took the product development and Anna took the social media and the branding side. So Rory, in 14 days, she said there were multiple times she wanted to quit. She ended up coding a fully functioning Chrome extension. We're talking college level coding here mm -hmm. with Python, JavaScript, HTML, all that jazz. She worked backwards and coded it with ChatGPT mm -hmm. and was able to prompt it and guide it in such a way that she built this thing. And this was pre-custom GPTs. This was the summer, it's like July of, of 2023. So she didn't even have access to custom GPTs and she was able to do this entirely on her own in 14 days. Well, mm. now add the additional layer, which was Anna's side. Anna, who had zero social media experience, you know, beyond just posting pictures of her friends and whatever on her personal Instagram, she started a business Instagram and she sought social media partnerships. So in 14 days, by the time Acadium launched, they not only had a fully functioning Chrome extension submitted to the Google store, 
They also had a brand, which was beautiful. They had branded merchandise. You can go look it up. It's on Etsy, I believe. Etsy Mm -hmm. or Shopify. Mm. They have branded merchandise with their gorgeous Acadian brand. They have social (laughs) media partnerships, 500 followers, and they were able to start generating short form content that they've continued doing to this day since the sprint. They, in essence, built a business in 14 days. Wow. Flat out, Hannah. That's the greatest segue into a into a break in 118 episodes. <laughs> Flat out. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> that just, makes me so happy. <laughs> it just makes me so happy. It also, in a really funny kind of way, Hannah, makes me feel young again because I just feel the energy. I mean, I've struggled with regrets about what happened in my schooling years 40 years ago, but never mind about that. Now, today, I'm just having way too much fun. I created a podcast. I give opportunities for people like you to tell these stories, and that's just the best feeling in the whole world. So there's just a lot wrapped up in that. So the best thing I can say is, hey, everyone, we've been talking with Hannah Grady-Williams, the founder, aka Chief Rebel at DeSkills, and a Gen Z consultant for startups. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at unrulr.com. Mahalo. Are you ready to shake things up in the classroom? Then get ready to blast off into the future of education with the Teacher Nerds podcast. Join Joe DiPaolo and Ron Nober as they share their own experiences, as well as talk with guests who are experts and innovators in education. From engaging teaching techniques to the latest educational technology, this podcast is a must listen for anyone passionate about the future of learning. Subscribe and get ready to learn with the Teacher Nerds podcast. Hey everyone, we are back with Hannah Grady-Williams, the chief rebel at DeSkills and the author of A Leader's Guide to Unlocking Gen Z, Insider Strategies to Empower Your Team, which is a no BS guide to connect with Gen Z in the workplace. So Hannah, because it would be fun to do so, I want to challenge you with a gnarly topic. But I did not want the challenge to just sort of fly off the top of my head. So I kept my eyes peeled, as my mother used to say. And eventually the challenge found its way to me. So at the skills website is your manifesto, which we've already talked about, at least in terms of the about of on, on your LinkedIn profile. And in your manifesto, I found these two statements. First, near the top, you write, quote, To succeed in the 21st century, the key 
is to stand out and forge your own path, not rely on what worked in the past, end quote. And then a bit later in your list of the skills commandments, I found, quote, community over competition. We believe in the strength of community to uplift, encourage, and educate one another rather than just competing for, quote, top spots. So Hannah, these feel contradictory to me. So how does one stand out and forge one's individual path and be in community with others and uplifting others at the same time? We talked earlier about how school is this zero-sum game a lot of the times, right? Mm -hmm. And how grades are weighted and only so many people can be at the top, so to speak. But these two statements that may on their face seem contradictory are actually what's possible in today's world. Mm -hmm. And here's what I mean. In the DeSkills ecosystem, we have a community that fiercely supports one another. In our 10-week sprints, students are fiercely supporting one another in achieving the individual impact goals that they've set for themselves. And so they're they're giving feedback and support to each other. They're having peer-to-peer interactions. There are no grades attached. And so at the end of the day, Every single person who chooses to play this game and who chooses to participate in these sprints ends up winning. They can all earn income. They can all learn real-world skills. They can all build standout resumes for their futures. And at the same time, we're a community that believes that individuals must stand out in the current world and not play the game, play that zero-sum game or not play the game of fading into the background. And Mm. so it's kind of like, and we don't have to go down this whole path, but it's kind of like the idea of the way that money works. You know, there's some people who believe that money is scarce or that there's only going to be certain people at the top who are, you know, quote unquote top, who are, you know, wealthy. And then there's going to be the poor and then there's going to be the people in between and that that gap is increasingly growing. And I'm someone who takes the opposite approach, which is literally money, all it means is it's what we place value on. And so that means that there's never a limit. It's that people can can take their skills or, you know, in this example, money itself, and, and it is what you make of it. And so mm. every person, we're not in a zero-sum game. It, it's a multiplication of options. It's supporting each other fiercely in our own individuality to be able to forge our own paths courageously and to support each other in doing so. And I believe that's how the future looks. It's not this zero-sum competition where everyone's competing for one spot or to go to an Ivy League school or whatever that is that causes so much stress and anxiety. It's this idea that we can all uplift each other in forging our own pathways and, and fiercely advocating for what we individually love to do and love to stand for. I love that. I think we can add to the list, you know, reciprocity, et cetera. Let's add to the list that I can live, that one of my skills is that I can live a life that sort of rejects the zero-sum concept and believes that many things can happen at the same time, including my standing out and forging my own individual path and being in community with others who are around me. I love that. Okay, one more challenge then. In your manifesto's commandments, it is written, we believe native digitals are unstoppable when we harness the power of digital resources and AI technology. 
So no doubt, Hannah, no doubt. But what say you about the native digital that develops a facial recognition AI that can be used by a local business to track the types of customers coming and going into and out of their property and for very negative purposes? You get where I'm taking this, of course. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts about Mm -hmm. that? Gosh, if we take a macro view of AI, I believe that, number one, AI can be used for exponential good or exponential evil. And I'm going to be, I'm a fierce advocate of students, teachers, parents, everybody using AI because we either go there or we die in essence. And and this is going to be a strong statement. But I believe that if we don't embrace AI, the people who don't embrace AI are going to be on the the backside of history. Mm. And yet, if the wrong people get their hands on it and and use it for evil, we might return to an agrarian state. We Mm. literally might, you know? There there are both of those possibilities, and we're living in that world where there are two extremes. But I don't believe that we're someone who can restrain the uses of AI on our students I believe it's the responsibility of the companies producing AI to be ethical about what they're releasing, the guidelines and restraints that they put on it. So there's two sides of this equation, if you ask, you know, Hannah for her opinion on this particular subject. So yes, will there be people who use this for evil? Absolutely. I mean, we just saw all of the the security hacks going on even at OpenAI headquarters within the last few months from other countries. And obviously there's, there's nefarious intent. And yet, if we're going to believe in a future where AI powers the world, we have to equip students with Mm -hmm. the knowledge and ability to work with it. Because who knows, we might be raising up the student who becomes uh, the person who is able to to help us prevent those forces, the evil forces from taking control of this technology. So I think it's like everything in life. There's this balancing game. There's It's going to be used for evil and for good. We're, of course, in a place where that is going to be exponentially more impactful as time goes on. And yet, I don't believe the solution is holding kids back who will use it for good intent, holding them back from being able to take advantage of it right now. So Hannah, you, you know, what the skills does to really get kind of into the weeds about about your process is a series of these 10-week sprints, right? And you're going to be running sprints, these cohort sprints throughout the course of 2024. There's one starting soon in January and then April and June and so on and so forth. And as you do these sprints where students are being curious and they're in inquiry mode and they're being trained and they're going out and looking for these impact gaps and they're starting to think about how they might work with a business and what their approach is going to be and so on and so forth. How do you build in this conversation about how we live in an ethical and moral world and how we use the tools that we use for for positive purposes? Like, how are you working on that in terms of the cohorts themselves and, you know, the the actual work that you're doing with these high schoolers? I'll answer this in, in two ways, Josh. Okay. One is students hear a lot more negative things about AI than positive. Yeah. And we live in a society right now, and to make this story as short as I possibly can, I was at a career speed networking event a couple weeks ago where I sat down, you know, there's we get rotations with groups of kids, and I was one of the businesses who was there, and I was sitting down and I had a group of about six kids, and this was happening over and over. And I would ask the kids, 
what have you heard about AI and how it's impacting work? Mm. And I kid you not, these high schoolers looked at me. They looked furtively around to make sure their teachers weren't listening before they looked at me and said, it's cheating, right? Yeah. And it took some probing to get these kids to actually admit they have ChatGPT on their phones. They're, they are asking it questions. And, and it was just this experience that really gave me this picture of just how evil AI is meant to come across and look and feel and sound to our kids. Yep. So that's point number one is in our cohorts, we're the voice of light for AI. So part mm. of my responsibility, a huge responsibility that I have is to paint the other picture of AI. And so I don't believe we're a space where we need to spend extensive time discussing the ethics and use of AI because the students are hearing more of that than they're hearing that it's a good, positive thing. So while we do, of course, mention it and, and talk about the need to use this in good and healthy and productive ways for society, mm. we're the balancing act. The second way I'll respond to this is that in our cohorts, by inherent nature of the way these these 10 weeks are set up of students looking for impact gaps and ways they can help their community and help businesses and, and help, you notice the key word is help here. Yes. We're naturally giving them ways to look for positive ways that they can use AI technology to support and help businesses who are, you know, potentially years behind in their digital integration. And these kids can be that tool and that resource mm. helping move businesses into the future. And so by very nature of how we've created these cohorts, the kids are not only building confidence in themselves, but they're also being taught this lens. Like if you put on 3D glasses and look through the world with a different eye, a different perspective, these 3D glasses are the lens that we look at the world. And so we have kids coming out of these cohorts saying, I never knew that mm. I could help with, you know, look at that bagel shop we were talking about earlier as an example. I didn't know I could look for these 5, 10, 15, 20 impact gaps that I'm now seeing mm. as a result of having been taught to look through this lens. Mm-hmm. So I know this is a, a sort of indirect answer to your question, but with those two angles, we're, you know, seeing kids that are sort of naturally coming out of these, thinking about the positive implications of AI and not how to do evil with it. Wow, well played. So one more gnarly question then. One of the most profound articles slash blogs I read in 2023, Hannah, is podcaster Steve Shapiro's blog about our American teen mental health crisis. The data, the research, the analysis is beyond scary. And Steve's focus is actually so-called high-achieving schools and how kids in these pressure cookers are literally dying by suicide because of the stress we are putting them under in the college or bust paradigm. So here's my very direct, very blunt question. In what ways does the skills have its eye on this crisis? And in what ways could the, or an impact portfolio, be the antidote to teen anxiety and stress and self-harm? It's a nerve, Josh. I've actually lost multiple people Mm -hmm. in my life to suicide. Mm -hmm. And I look at this world and I I loved Steve's article because it hits on, it hits home on so many different levels of the society we've created that is zero sum. 
Yes. And then I look at what we're doing with the skills that's about multiplying life options. And I think, wow, you know, my my friends who looked at their life and the stress they were under and the the pressure to do more and more and more and more. And that college is not seen as a stepping stool, it's seen as a destination. And just all of these negative messages that the media tells our students that 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 they learn from a young age that you know you brought up the idea of of the children's book and we've been thinking about how could we produce shows in the future that that give kids this idea that college is not a destination it's a stepping stool and that your whole life doesn't end if you don't get into the college you want to go to and yeah. and just this idea that life is not zero sum yeah. that life is about creating opportunities that it's about believing in yourself about having someone who believes in you enough that you can then become that mentor eventually to to give back even just a few years down the road to say to someone else who's struggling in their teenage years you're not alone and you've seen me just a couple years later be able to forge my own path and to think outside the box and and to play the game that that no one seems to be talking about which is not even a game. You know, we've all been told to play this sort of game that tells us you've got one correct path you're supposed to go on and I just watch my friends who, you know, the ones who've either attempted suicide or are struggling with depression or who ha- you know have ultimately ended their lives and I just think if we had a purpose as a society and a hope as teenagers that our lives, number one, didn't depend on grades and scores and drills and and all of that, but number two, that we could find things we enjoy and that give us meaning and purpose in our teenage years, if we could find that earlier, like I did when my dad showed me, mm-hmm. I could take a skill I learned and apply it in the real world, or I could read a book like Team of Rivals and and, and be committed to finding a team like that when I owned my own business who, mm. who challenged me. Like finding those, those bits of purpose and meaning in high school that are truly speaking to the core of who we are as people, then we'll end up with kids who are purpose-driven, who are globally oriented and globally minded and, and not kids who are just cramming into the rat race of of scores and drills and tests and more school. I love that, Hannah. And I, I really appreciate your response. And I, I want to tell our listeners that if you get a chance, you should listen to Hannah's episode with Christopher Lockhead. At the end of that episode, which is truly an amazing episode that just opened my mind up to so many different things. There's an extremely thoughtful conversation around a different crisis, which has to do with boys in America. And Hannah's thoughts about that are are well worth listening to. So I won't say any more because I want you to actually go and listen to that episode. (laughs) So thank you, Hannah, for that. So here we are at the end of this amazing conversation. And and I, I love to end episodes by giving guests the opportunity to shout out to those giants upon whose shoulders they stand. In your case, you listed two individuals who have uplifted you, coached you, guided you, invested in you. One is Ted Dintersmith, who is this show's patron, and your Yoda. And the other is named Christopher Lockhead, who we've talked about already, who you called your Obi-Wan. So in what ways are these two guys giants upon whose shoulders you stand? In what ways are they the force to you? And how do you carry them with you each day? Gosh, 
this huge, huge Obi-Wan or Chris and Ted is my Yoda. So my, my Yoda and my Obi-Wan, they are truly, truly giants in my life. And I'll answer by saying this. I have learned more about what fierce humility looks like from both of these two men than pretty much anyone else in my life. Mm. You know, as a, as a kid, you think that your life goal is about paving your own way to success. And you think about, you know, you've got to speak well of yourself and hype yourself up. And yeah, that's true to some extent. But what I've realized from Ted and from Chris is most successful individuals who have made a massive impact in their life, like like both of these men have done, is they've taken the approach that instead of hyping themselves up and, you know, being those egotistical sort of tycoons who are super successful, they've taken the opposite approach, which is just this fierce humility and mm -hmm. understanding that they too stood on the shoulders of giants. And now that they're able to throw a rope down, they can do that with the utmost humility. And so, you know, you'd go out to dinner with, with Ted, especially, and you'd be having a conversation with him and he'll be sort of, I mean, you know him, Josh, so yep. he's got this just like self-deprecating sort yes, of humor where, you, he you know, he's got this just so much humility about him that I know comes from a place of incredible strength and success from the core of his very soul. Mm -hmm. And so I, that's something, a quality just, I greatly admire in him and in Chris, it comes out in other ways, but I would just say, you know, that I could, the list goes on and on about things I've learned from them. But if I could sum it up in, in those two words, just fierce humility, I would say that's mm. something I hope when I look back on my life years and years and years later, that I could say, I, I instilled fierce humility in the people I mentored, that they live mm. their lives for other people and for giving back and not for themselves. That's awesome. Amazing. We'll add to the list fierce humility, reciprocity, rejection of the zero-sum game, and fierce humility. I didn't realize that we were going to come up with this list during this conversation, but there you are, right? <laughs> and yes, I, I completely agree with you about Ted. He is so self-effacing, so self-deprecating, and yet his fierceness about what he thinks what school could be is really the reason why I'm in this thing and why I do the work that I'm doing. And I think what I want to express here at the end is, you know, I've heard this so many times, Hannah, over the course of these many episodes when I do these questions at the end about giants. I hear people say that so-and-so believed in me. And I think that's the thing that really matters to me the most about Ted, and I suspect this is probably very true of Chris for you, is that they believe in you. And that's just an awesome feeling, isn't it? It's just amazing. It is huge. It's amazing. In fact, I have clips of both of them on my desktop when I'm having a down day or whatever, <laughs> where I'll just pull them up and and I've got them speaking directly into the camera saying, this is what I believe about you. Now you go believe it about yourself. And it is, it's just amazing. Yeah. And what they're saying is the force is with you. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? So, Hannah Grady-Williams, thank you for your time today. What School Could Be is all in to support the skills, and we can't wait to see what happens in 2024 and beyond. And thank you for all that you're doing to help high schoolers develop impact portfolios and identify impact gaps, and also to make the world a better place. So really appreciate you, appreciate the time today, and onwards and upwards, right? I think you're now officially Uncle Josh after this conversation, <laughs> so. <laughs> 
So I so appreciate you having me on, Josh. This has been awesome. I've literally enjoyed every single second. That's great. Awesome. Our editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our theme music is created by a remarkable pianist, Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work on his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and 2,000 cities. We'd be grateful if you would support these episodes with Leading Edge, innovative and imaginative educators and students by giving us your own rating and writing a review wherever you get your podcasts. This series is sponsored by Education Change Agent, Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the award-winning documentary film, Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. If you are committed to rolling up your sleeves and joining thousands of educators, business professionals, nonprofit leaders, and parents as we reimagine education to be relevant and learner-centered, please join the What School Could Be global online community. Simply log in to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or download the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast and on LinkedIn at Josh Rapoon. Listeners, one of the most important things we all can do is to bring kindness and compassion into the world. For sure, we need a surplus of both right now. Until next time, ahui ho, and thank you for listening to the What School Could Be podcast. <laughs>